You're listening to Cleveland First Baptist Church's Wednesday night adult Bible study audio. For more information on Cleveland First Baptist Church, please visit clevelandfirstbaptistchurch.com. Hey, I got it going. We're glad you're here and um, look forward to studying God's Word together. If you uh, would turn your Bibles to Ephesians 4. Uh, before we begin, let me just lead us in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you, Lord, for just uh, watching out for us. We sense your presence in every way, wherever we are. And we know we live in a world that is turned upside down right now. And we don't have answers for a lot of things. But, Lord, we know that you do. And we just want to trust you in every way. Father, as we study your word, help us to... Um, understand, open our hearts, let us um, just be responsive to your spirit in the way that you would like for us to be. And Father, I just pray that you would help us to um, apply what we learn, let it be something that uh, is visible tomorrow in our relationships and in our words and thoughts. And Lord, we just love you and thank you for your word and ask you to bless it tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so on Sunday, we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount for the last several weeks, um, a collection of teachings, really, in which Jesus gives his disciples uh, a new understanding of what it really means to be a part of the kingdom of God, what it means to be uh, under God's rule, and how that affects us in a, in a practical way. Uh, every Sunday, I've kind of pointed out that what Jesus tells us on the Sermon on the Mount is really demanding, but it, is, it has to do with our everyday lives and how we go about what we do. Um, what Jesus expects, though, is really something that we can't do. Only in Christ do we find happiness and suffering. Uh, we can't do that on our own. Only in him will we be able to obey the Ten Commandments from our heart and not just from a legalistic kind of way. Uh, only through Christ can we love our enemies uh, or give our wealth away or any of those things that Jesus has taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I know um, about a year ago I was talking to a lady who, um, and, and I ask her about church. She was talking about spiritual things. Um, she'd ask what I did and told her I was a pastor and so forth. And she said, well, you know, I, I don't need church. I just, I just live by the, I just live by the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> and uh, I, I didn't say anything, but I did chuckle. <laughs> what I wanted to say is you, if you could do that, then you wouldn't need the church, you know. But um, that's, that's a difficult thing. But without his power, we are helpless to do any of the things that Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, without his power, we are simply molded by the world in which we live and do as the world does. So Paul, when writing to the church in Ephesus, does something uh, that I like to call Paul's Sermon on the Mount. Also kind of a practical advice for living the life of a disciple. Like Jesus, he describes life, the life of one who, who follows Christ, who is, lives in the kingdom of God, under the authority of God. 
So uh, we're going to look tonight at Ephesians 4, starting at verse 17, going into chapter 5. But uh, let me just kind of put this all in context for you first. Um, First of all, he's writing uh, to the church in Ephesus. This is a church that Paul himself planted. Uh, Ephesus was one of the major cities, I I would think probably the largest city in in Asia Minor, what we call Turkey today. And it was a a very wealthy trade center because um, a bunch of trade routes crossed in Ephesus had the largest um, um, temple to the goddess Diana. Uh, and Paul had lived there for two years, started the church, but he's now in prison in Rome, and he's writing back to the Ephesians, and it would be a letter that was then passed around to the other churches that he'd begun in Asia Minor. Most of the epistles that Paul writes, these letters, address a certain problem. But that's not the case with uh, Ephesians. Paul is simply writing a letter to his friends to give them further instruction as they grow in their faith. So this is what leads up to the section that we want to look at tonight. This is what the church has just heard. Okay, This is what they've been talking about. So Paul has presented the sorry state of the world without Christ in which division between Jews and Gentiles could not be bridged. That cultural, religious, and racial divide between them resulted in insurmountable uh, enmity between Jews and pagans, uh, non-Jews. Then Paul says that God has in Christ built a bridge which united all men regardless of their culture or their race. Through Christ Jesus, Uh, Jews and Gentiles have been reconciled to each other and to God. Okay, so Paul says in Ephesians 2.16, together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other was put to death. Man, that's, that's quite a statement, isn't it? And I think, you know, for us, it's very difficult Pardon me. It's very difficult to appreciate the kind of enmity and resentment that existed between Jews and non-Jews. We have racial divides. Heaven knows we're confronted with that today in our own world. But Paul is saying, you know, it doesn't matter how big that divide is. Christ died to unify you. And in in the body of Christ, in the church that divide should no longer exist. So then in chapter 3, Paul prays for the Ephesian Christians, and we remember this uh, one most well-known passage from that prayer. If you look at verses 18 and 19 of chapter 3, Paul prays this, And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide and how long, how high and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Wow. (laughs) Now, in understanding that passage, out of context, we generally focus on God's amazing love for me. While I was yet a sinner, 
uh, his love was so deep and so high and so great, you know, that it reached even me. But really, Paul's prayer was spoken in the context of a discussion about the unity of differing people in the church. It's really the context of that prayer. So he prays that the Ephesians would be able to experience all the love of Christ which would unite them in the church of God, making them complete in their faith. And that is quite quite a request. Then in the first half of Ephesians 4, Paul discusses the twin goals of the Christian church, unity and maturity in faith. So look at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 4. He says, Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to the one gracious hope for the future. So Paul, after talking about this enormous divide between the peoples and then praying that, uh, that they would understand the love of Christ that would unite them. He makes this incredible statement uh, about being united through the peace that we find in Christ and, and that there's just one body and one spirit that we as followers of Christ are to be united. And in fact, we are united in a way that uh, is really beyond understanding. And that that is a wonderful statement. Secondly, the goal of the church is maturity in the faith. So Paul reminds the Ephesians that God had given instruction through the apostles and prophets and teachers and evangelists so that they might be equipped to serve together. And then he says in, in verse 13, this will continue, this teaching and this, um, this word from uh God's prophets, it'll be, it'll continue all of this, this learning and will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. (laughs) Now, let me just ask you, how many of you have reached that maturity? <laughs> I haven't. Uh, we, we are certainly not measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. But the one thing that really just uh, impressed me as I prepared this study is the fact that maturity in Christ results in what? Results in unity. And, you know, I was just thinking of, of all of the you know, divisions within the body of Christ, and I don't mean denominations, but I mean within local churches. How much hurt and how much, you know, stuff goes on. Where does that come from? Really, it's spiritual immaturity. And, and that's not just, that's from sometimes the pastor. Uh, the worst case scenario um, But we should be in this process of growing in our understanding of what God did and does and expects. And the result of that is unity between you and me in the body of Christ. Um, 
And, you know, we don't have to look too far, do we, to, <laughs> to find where there is disunity because of something so immature that you just really shake your head sometimes. You know, the color of the carpet, or we, the old example. But I'm sure there have been hundreds of churches who split over that very thing. Uh, really more like preschoolers. You know, the problem, though, is not that we have differing opinions. The problem in that case is that we are not mature in Christ. Um, sad, sad. And sometimes, you know, you just shake your head. You just don't know what to do, really. So with those two things in mind, Paul then goes on to give practical instruction for daily living. And that's what we really want to look at today. So starting with verse 17, I want to read, uh, we'll just take it a couple of verses at a time. Begins by saying, with the Lord's authority, I say this. That is, this word is coming from Christ. It is not just my idea. Live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and easily and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. So for the Jews, the Gentiles... Uh, a Gentile was a non-Jew, really a term that replied to everybody but us, right? So here Paul uses the term to refer to any unbeliever, okay? And that's a little different because, of course, the church in Ephesus would have been a very mixed group. It would have been largely uh, a Gentile church, a non-Jewish church. Uh, it might be understood in the same sense that he sometimes uses the world, the word world, so he says, do not be conformed to the world. What does he mean by that? Don't be conformed to the things that non-believers do. That what you do should look different from that. Okay? So the world in which Paul lived was one heavily influenced by uh, Greek culture, which prided itself in what? In knowledge, understanding, philosophy. The Ephesians, they would have grown up in that kind of world in which Philosophical prowess was very important. Paul addresses that world. He says, they are confused. Now, you know, for us, I mean, that doesn't seem so extreme. But for a Greek who is boastful about all that he knows and being able to discuss this philosophy and that philosophy to say, you're just all mixed up. Um, you know, with their thinking ability and that practice in arguing a point and reason and philosophy, Paul says all of that is pointless without God. And then he says their minds are full of darkness. This would have been shocking for a, a Greek who prided himself in his understanding and knowledge. Paul is saying that any understanding apart from Christ is in reality just darkness. Okay, Now, we, we have to be careful because it is so easy for this dark world to control how we think. And, you know, <laughs> you know what did Jesus say about, you know, 
what goes into your stomach, that doesn't, that doesn't matter. It's what comes out that matters. And, and what he meant was, the, you know, the words and our actions, where do they come from? They come from our thoughts. And so this is, is incredibly important for us to understand that what rules in our world is a thought that is darkness. It is without Christ. And, and we have to constantly be aware of that because how we think, it can't be like that. It can't be dark like the world. Okay, why would they be in such a terrible state? The Greeks, they were, you know, powerful at one point. They were certainly educated more than any other peoples of the world, with the exception, perhaps, of the Jews. Um, why? Well, Paul says, they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him, against Christ, against God. So, Paul says, the responsibility, it lies squarely on their shoulders. They are the ones who simply close their minds. So this is seen not in the words they say as much as the life they live, the way they treat others and the way they think about things. Now, I can say that I'm a Christian and I can be baptized a hundred times, but if my life does not reflect the work and words of Christ, then I have closed my mind to him. And, and we need to always be aware of that and thinking about that. And then Paul says this interesting expression. He says, they have no shame. They have no shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eager, eagerly practice every kind of impurity. So let's just think about this a minute. Um, when did shame enter the picture in human history? In the garden, that's right. So Adam and Eve, they sin, right? And what is the very first thing the scripture says? They were ashamed. They were ashamed. So why is that so important? Well, shame is the normal response to sin when we are in the presence of God. So we come into God's presence, and if our spirits are sensitive, then we experience shame because we sin. And, you know, knowing that we serve a God who is perfect in every way, who has loved us when we don't deserve it, then it is really a natural thing to sense shame in his presence. Um, and to have no shame is to really live completely separate from a holy God. Because I can't really come into his presence without that sense of shame. Now that, that doesn't mean I'm going around, you know, like the, the priests of the Middle Ages who had the, you know, they whipped themselves. That's not what I'm talking about. But you think of Isaiah when he came into the presence of God. What, what did he say? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. He felt shame because he knew himself and to come into the presence of God. And that is a healthy shame. That is something that is good because we, we need to recognize 
the sin in our lives and the extent to which sin controls us and separates us from God. But if we have no shame, then there can't really be any relationship to God. Because if I'm in the presence of a holy God, I'm going to sense shame because I am not holy as God has told me to be holy. Now, of course, real shame is always tied to sorrow, to remorse, and should lead to what? Repentance. You know? So Isaiah falls before God and and he is ashamed because he knows his own heart, his own sin. And what what happened to Isaiah? What did the angel do? Took a coal and touched his lips. He, He was cleansed. And so we as believers, we live in in this situation. There is shame because of our sin. And, you know, that is something that is going to touch us regularly, every day. But we also at the same time have to remember that Christ has cleansed us. He has touched our lips. His spirit has made us holy before God. All right. Um, The shame leads to repentance and repentance leads to assurance of salvation. Assurance of being cleansed. Okay. So Paul says, though, you, you live in a world that is without shame. Now, aren't you sometimes just amazed at the things you read or hear in the news? I mean, I mean, you just go, who does that? Who would do that? Someone in the darkness, that's who. Uh, The sad thing is that often you read those things about people who claim to be Christians. I'm not judging. I'm not the one who makes that decision. But often it appears, man, there's a lot of darkness there. And, you know, it's necessary to reevaluate. And honestly, we need to do that too. We need to look for the corners of darkness in our lives. Okay, in verse, uh, let's read 20 to 24. But that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. What a great text. (laughs) So Paul says, but you, for you, things are different now. Because you've learned, there it is again, wisdom and knowledge, understanding. You've learned about Jesus. Now you know the truth so that your lives must look different from the world. Now, it's important. Paul says, you you know the truth. Let me just say, there is truth. 
There is truth. Truth is not um, negotiable. Jesus said, I am the truth. And his word is truth. And, and that means that in this world where, you know, where we are called on all the time to evaluate, where, where is the baseline? The baseline is Jesus. And if we're trying to decide what is true and what is false, I'm not talking about facts, whether Tom was at, you know, Walmart yesterday, but if something is right or wrong, then my baseline is Jesus. And I say this often, but it's, it's kind of a cliche, but really you need to ask over and over, what would Jesus have done in this situation? Because he is truth. And then Paul describes this battle that's going on. And, you know, uh, we, we need to be really aware of this, guys. Um, Paul is, talks about the old nature and, and the new nature. So um, we are in, in this battle, the new nature, which is our renewed spirit uh, filled with the spirit of God, it is constantly at battle with the old nature, the old human nature, the selfish, uh, self-centered nature. All right, so in us, there really are two people in a way. We are the, the new person, but until you put me in the grave, sin is just not over. And I hate that. You know, seems to me it would be better if we didn't have to go through that. If, you know, we come out of the baptismal waters and it says you're a new creation and by golly, you are a new creation. You know, nothing is like, that's just not how it is. You know, I mean, at least for me. You know, I got to struggle against selfishness and whatever, you know, the, the weakness that I have is. But um, Paul says, you know, uh, you got to fight. And he says, throw it off. He's saying, resist. Resist. Don't go along with those impulses that are still there, that are going to die when they put you in the grave. And that is a good thing about death. You know, somebody told Nancy one time, said, well, Nancy, there are a lot, a lot of things that are much worse than death. And I've not forgotten that because that's true. She was in relation to her mom. And he wasn't talking about this, but this is, this is even more important, you know. Um, if the scripture says death is a victory, well, one of the reasons that it's a victory is we don't have to fight that fight anymore. Then we are, in, we are made like Jesus. We really are completed in him. That's going to be a great day. So uh, we need to, recognize that, you know, that, that the world is constantly and that old nature that is still alive that, you know, resists the transformational power of the Spirit. <coughs> we need to remember that that is, um, that that is something we got to fight against. And, and, you know, it just wears you down. It just wears you down. Um, you know, we... We have uh, two daughters, and one of them 
Well, both of them are pretty headstrong, actually. But um, our younger daughter, Man, she was and is persistent. That's a great quality. But when she was a teenager, I can't tell you how many times we would say, one of us to the other, just give it to her, you know. <laughs> Whatever it is, you know. Luckily, it was never something bad, but, you know, um, because, man, she's not going to give up. And um, that has been a good thing in many ways in her life. But maybe, I'm not sure her husband would say that. But, um, you know, the, the world is constantly wearing us down. And we just can't give in. Um, you know, how does, that, how does that look? Well, you know, how easy is it? And, and I do worry about this. Uh, and I know, I know, what did I say Sunday? You're not supposed to worry. Nancy, don't tell me. But, you know, uh, I do worry about what will this be like? What will the church be like whenever COVID finally is over? What about the people who found it very easy not to come to church, period? And now they've had a great excuse for a year, you know, seems like 10. Do you think they're going to come back? I don't know. But I do know that it is a great battle for many people just to be faithful to God's church. And every Sunday is a struggle, you know, to get out of bed. How many times have you heard it? I just, oh, you know, I just, I just need to sleep in on Sunday. You know, three Sundays, it gets a lot of easier. Well, that may not be your battle. Your battle is something. That's not my battle. But that is a battle for many people. But there, every one of us has a battle. And what I'm saying is don't give in. Don't throw in the towel. Um, we cannot win the fight, though, in our own strength. So Paul says, let the Spirit renew. It must be the work of the Spirit. I'm not going to make it. I can't make myself a new person. Only Christ can do that. And even that is a struggle against the temptation to return to the pig trough. It is. So how do we let the Spirit renew us? Well, uh, we're really engaged on two battlefronts there. One, he works through our thoughts. And let me tell you, the world is constantly trying to manipulate our thoughts. And uh, this is a battle that, that we must win. And, he says, through our attitudes, thoughts and attitudes. So I need to be constantly evaluating my attitudes, how I feel about things and people and what's going on around me. And I need to be asking, is your attitude, Rick, is it really the attitude that Jesus would have? He is, is the baseline. So Paul says, put on, that is, we have to do it, the new nature uh, well, what does it look like? It looks like Jesus. Truly righteous, that is one who lives right and holy, that is set aside for the purposes of God. So, you know, those are the two things we need to constantly be 
looking at our own lives and evaluating and striving to be to live right according to what God tells us and how Jesus would live and to be set aside for a new purpose. Wow. Okay, and then look at uh, 25 to 31. Paul says, so stop telling lies. <laughs> I love these talking to Christians. <laughs> stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you're a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good, hard work, and then give generously to others in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own. I love that. Guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. So, obviously, we can't discuss all of that Paul says right here, but we want to just kind of understand this picture that he's painting. He is just giving us examples that he feels need to be pointed out. Now, I don't think, uh, perhaps, but I don't think in this case, you know, we know that like in, in Corinth, he often called the name of sister so-and-so. You got to watch it because, you know, I've, I've heard. <laughs> Paul is not really doing that here. I don't think he's thinking of old brother Smith who just can't help himself and just lies all the time. I don't think, you know. I think he's, he's painting with broad strokes and saying these are things that tend to entrap us. Okay, things from the world that come in that we have to fight against. We have to fight against lies. Our words must reflect the truth. Now, is, is, that, is that easy? I, I, you know, I, I think that we get so accustomed to kind of, you know, we wouldn't call it a lie. We just sort of, it's just not completely the truth, you know. But that's not what we're supposed to be. And so important that as Christians who, if we, especially if we are involved in work and so forth in the world with non-believers, I mean, we just need to be above reproach. Our word needs to be something everybody can count on. Anger does not need to control us. Uh, and when I am angry, we're to seek reconciliation. We're to apologize. We're to, you know, work it out. You know, what is, how do we do that today, generally? Well, we just get mad and leave. <clears throat> but that isn't at all what Paul says. He says, don't just get mad and leave, but go talk it out with your brother. We, we just talked about that the other day. Uh, honesty, no kind of theft or whatever, we should be known as one, you know, who works hard, who, you know, is, uh, he's going to give it his best if, you know, he's, <laughs> um, if he's agreed to 
work two hours, it's not going to be an hour and 45 minutes. It's going to be two hours. Um, generosity. We need to be giving. All of these things, are, well, maybe not all of them, but most of them are things Jesus mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount. It says, my language needs to reflect Christ. Everything you say must be good and helpful, encouraging others. And then he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by the way you live. Um, that's, that's a powerful verse. And when we think about that, you know, what should bother us when I'm walking away from that conversation and I'm thinking, well, you know, wasn't quite right what I said, you know, or the way I said it wasn't, you know, that should bother me. Why? Because it grieves the Holy Spirit. It makes God's Spirit in me sorrowful. Now, I want you to think about something here. Paul says um, in one of the epistles, uh, he says, is, is it right? He's talking about sexual purity. And, and he says, is it right for you as a person in whom the Spirit of God lives? To join the Spirit of God with a prostitute? You remember that verse? Pretty harsh verse. Okay, I'm not worried about prostitutes. But is it right for my words that should reflect the Spirit of God to reflect hate or hurtful thoughts or whatever? Is, is it right to make the Holy Spirit lie when I lie to a brother or sister? Would the Spirit of God cheat just a little bit on the work He does? So we need to always be aware that really what we do and what we say, it is actually God's Spirit. That is speaking. And that, that's a pretty high bar. So he says, bitterness, rage, anger, slander, they just don't have any place in the life of a Christian. Instead, should be kindness and tenderheartedness, forgiving attitude, just as God through Christ forgave us. Wow. Okay. Then in 15, this section goes on. He says, uh, imitate God, therefore, in everything you do because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. So we have an example. We know how our lives are supposed to look. Um, the question is, do we? So then in verses 3 through 9, I, I won't read those because of just time, but um, there Paul lists this, uh, get a whole list of sins again that cannot be a part of our lives. And he warns the, the believers in Ephesus that their eternity hangs in the balance. And 
This is a pretty, pretty uh, hefty thought. Look at verse 5. He says there, you can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of God, um, of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of the world. So, who is going to enter the kingdom of God? How can Paul say that? Well, you know, we have to go back to something we've talked about over and over in the Sermon on the Mount. It is a correct understanding of salvation according to the Bible, to the the Word of God. A part of that process of salvation is regeneration. It's not just getting wet and got that hacked off and done the right ritual and so I'm, you know, free, good to go. That's just not how that works. But it is a process through which we are saved and regenerated. Without regeneration, salvation is not real. So this doesn't mean perfection now. I'm not saying, you know, you got to get it right all the time. But there is a visible change and a a direction in which a true believer is moving. And we need to be aware of that for ourselves, not for others. And then Paul takes this extra, he takes extra time to talk about greed. Now I have to say... You know, I've probably read this a a thousand times, but uh, that is something that has jumped out to me in the last uh, few days. You know, maybe because of the sermon on Sunday, you know, but here Paul takes, um, he, he he takes an extra effort to handle the problem of greed. Why, Why is that? I just think because it's such a big problem for us as human beings, as fallen. Uh, creatures that we we are not naturally generous and giving. We are naturally hoarders, you know. Keep it all for me, and the more the merrier, you know. But so he says, you know, don't you know? It's different now because Christ is in us. And then let's look at these last uh, four verses, starting in verse ten. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. It is shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret. But their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them, for the light makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Awake, O sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Okay, so Paul says the gold standard, carefully determine what pleases the Lord. That's what we've been saying Uh, the whole evening, you know, living a life that pleases Christ according to his word. And that's, that's our, that's our bar. And then in 15, he says, so be careful how you live. Uh, Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Um, Live according to what he calls you uh, to do. He says, make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. That's verse 16. So um, what do you think that means? Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Well, how are our days? <laughs> do we live in an evil time? It's amazing, isn't it? It's, it's a shocking. I mean, 
I'm not sure it's really any worse than every other time, but we live in a world that uh, is not right. And so he says, every opportunity you have in this world to do good for someone, to say a word of encouragement, every time you have the opportunity to stand for what is right and to say that is not right, we have a responsibility to do that. Because we belong to Christ. And the Spirit prods us. You know, you know how often have you been in a situation where you were in your heart. You knew, I really need to say something here. Not saying, you know, not running anybody down. But I need to say, I, I don't agree with that. That's not right. It's not right. How you're running that person down. It's not right. Whatever. You know. Uh, it's a difficult to do, to do. But Paul says that's an opportunity. Make the most of every chance you have. And then he says don't act thoughtlessly. Verse 17. But understand what the Lord wants you to do. So you know we shouldn't be brainless airheads. We ought to be thoughtful. We ought to plan. We ought to think of how we can live for God in a world that is so far from him. And then he says in 18, don't be drunk with wine because that is going to ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So, um, you know, when I was a kid, this bothered me. It bothered me that Paul would make that comparison of drunk with wine you know, is in some way he's, he's you know, he's comparing the two. Um, what, what would be the comparison there? Well, what happens to a person when he is drunk with wine? He is completely taken over by that, right? So he says, instead, let the spirit completely take you over. You know, I don't think he's, he's talking about, you know, uh, jumping over the pews. I don't think that's what he means. But I think what he's talking about is that just like wine, it just controls everything in you if, if you are filled with it. So you are filled with the Spirit, so it should affect every word you say and every, every thought. If you're drunk with wine, what is your word? What are they going to, you know? You're not going to say a clear sentence, right? Well, if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, your sentences are different from the world because he controls them. And then he says, and give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Please remember that Paul is writing this from prison. And he says, give thanks for everything in every situation. And, you know, I don't think that means uh, that Paul got up, you know, from his cot or his you know, blanket probably on the stone floor and said, oh, this is such a cool hotel, Lord. Thank you, thank you. I don't think that's what he means. But he says, you know, just be aware of how good God has been to you. And, you know, what we have to look forward to, it is so much more than anything that we have to suffer here. Um... We've got a good, we have a good future. And we can thank God for that. No matter what 
uh, plagues us in this life. Okay? Isn't that a great text? Wow. Let's just give thanks to God. Father, we just praise you and, and thank you for the good things that you have done. Lord, we do live in a world that is dark and seems to be going down a very dangerous path. We live in a world that is plagued with sickness and fear. And it is so easy for us to uh, fall into that same way of thinking. So we just ask you, Lord, help us to be so filled with your spirit that we can be different, that we can live lives that please you. And Lord, let us come to the end of our lives and be able to look back and say, Lord, I've done the best I can. Let us just be so faithful to you. Let us live for you. Let us bring glory to your name. We pray that in the name of the one we love and the one who loved us, your son. Amen. So glad you came tonight and just... um, Hope you have a good evening.